of the National People's Congress session yesterday. She also called the nation's 5% GDP growth target pragmatic. Ms Lee said she hoped the goal can be realised despite external headwinds. She was speaking at a media briefing in Beijing alongside other local NPC delegates. This is a challenging goal because we all understand that the world is now undergone a very complex situation and there are a lot of challenges. Our economy is just picking up. Therefore, I think uh, our country decide to set 5%. It is a pragmatic and practical goal. We believe that it will be able to achieve with, with good result. And Hong Kong can make use of this opportunity because uh, all the quarantine measures have been dropped and uh, it is a good time that we should further integrate into our nation, especially the Greater Bay Area. An 84-year-old taxi driver has been arrested after his cab hit and injured three pedestrians, two of them seriously, in Fortress Hill yesterday. Todd Harding has details. The accident happened at about one o'clock when the taxi was driving down Fortress Hill Road towards Kings Road. It's believed the driver lost control and the taxi hit three pedestrians before smashing into a set of traffic lights at the junction. Two of the pedestrians were unconscious when they were rushed to hospital, while one suffered only minor injuries. The 84-year-old taxi driver, as well as a 43-year-old passenger, were also sent to hospital for treatment. The taxi driver has been arrested for dangerous driving, causing grievous bodily harm. And current and former Twitter staff have told the BBC the company is no longer able to protect users from online abuse, state-coordinated disinformation and child sexual exploitation. They blame mass sackings and changes made under Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk. Twitter says defending and respecting the user's voice is a core value. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.05 in Hong Kong on March the 6th, and this is Money Talk. I'm Andrew Work, manning this desk for Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday this week. Like Loverboy says in the song, everybody's working for the weekend. Well, Chinese legislators are. The CPPCC and the NPC were at work in making pronouncement on their plans for the nation. As expected, they will will the Chinese economy to grow by 5% and outline other spending priorities. More on this during the show. Lots of economic data coming up. With Japan's unemployment and inflation both down, good news all around with Indian manufacturing, European growth, and the U.S. services economy on the up and more. Not so great is Indonesian inflation, which is expected to persist above 5% for the first half of the year. Foxconn, the ginormous maker of Apple phones in China, is reportedly talking to Indian officials about establishing a manufacturing presence in that country to support its ambitions in chip making and electric vehicles. Locally, and with a call back to Friday's Money Talk, Clock and Flap was a smashing success with a huge social media presence that finally let the world see Hong Kong having fun on masks and sans masks. They were so impressed that they've announced next year's date, which is this year, December 1st to 3rd, uh, 2023. Also, Asia's biggest insider conference for live event organizers, Live Matters, was held outdoors and well-received. Catch RTHK's live on-site coverage of those events in the archives of the weekend shows. And congratulations to everyone who made it to the smashing Crimes Against Pop DJ session that set the earth shaking. Also shaking your world today, our guest will be Mark Michelson, Chairman, Asia CEO Forum, IMA Asia, 
and Ben Emmons, the Principal and Senior Portfolio Manager at New Edge Wealth. Taking a look at your money, Caroline Wright speaks to David Nebone, financial education consultant on helping older relatives with their finances. And we close strong with a view from South Korea with Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist from KB Securities. Now, if you have questions for our guests, fire them into our email, uh, moneytalk at rthk.hk. And if you want to share your views, get on our Facebook page at moneytalk at rthk.hk. And ladies and gentlemen, get ready because this is Money Talk. We are looking at what's coming out of China. China's NPC and CPCC, so many C's, delivered their pronouncements on the direction of the Chinese economy. Growth is expected to hit 5% this year. Defense spending is set to rise 7.2%, its fastest rise in four years. The $225 billion spending target probably underestimates actual spending, as R&D costs are not included. The government also indicated a need to reform the financial sector and will target disorderly expansion in the property market. Specific measures usually follow a broad strategic announcement. Now, Premier Li Keqiang said the economy was still facing challenges both in- externally and internally. Uncertainties in the external environment are on the rise. Global inflation remains high at home. The foundation for stable growth needs to be consolidated. Insufficient demand remains a pronounced pro- problem. Going forward, Mr. Li stressed the need to boost domestic demand. We should give priority to the recovery and expansion of consumption. The incomes of urban rural residents should be boosted through multiple channels. We should also boost consumption of consumer services and also encourage the non-government funds to join the major state projects and also to shore up the weak links in order to stimulate private investment. Dan Wang, chief economist at Hang Seng Bank, says the economic growth target is lower than the market had anticipated. The policy continuity is quite strong, which is somewhat a surprise because many people have anticipated stronger macro policy support, especially on the monetary side. But overall, the government has recognized the financial risks and the creation of a job in urban China as the number one priorities. So it just seems that China's economic recovery this year will be stable and the pace will slowly picking up. Senior European diplomats and trade data monitor are suggesting that Russia is still getting its hands on advanced semiconductors from Europe, mostly through third-party countries like Turkey, the UAE, and Kazakhstan. Other banned goods are also suspected to be moving through these other channels as these countries' exports to Russia have soared as EU exports fell. Over in the U.S., RTHK's international economics correspondent Barry Wood is keeping watch for the unemployment report, which is due Friday. For the January report that came out in February, we had this stunning report of half a million jobs being created in a month in which only 100,000 were expected. Will that be repeated? Probably not. But that is what market participants will trade on, and that doesn't come till Friday. There's some clues that come out on Thursday, but uh, that is the big one for the week. Also in Asia, we're looking at Korea, where the Korean president's kind words for Japan on its Independence Day have been followed up with suggestions that Japan would lift its restrictions of key, uh, the export of key electronic components to Korea if Korea gave up its complaint to the WTO on this issue. And there may even be an agreement on forced labor issues going all the way back to World War II in a continuing improvement on relations between the countries. 
The Foxconn manufacturing move to India will see it build a 300-acre facility in Bengaluru, spending $700 million in the process. The new facility will be close to the international airport and will create about 10,000 jobs. Up to 25% of Apple's products, of which Foxconn is the biggest maker, could come from India in the future. All right, uh, those were your headlines, and this is your market report. The markets were popping on Friday. Not as much as Crimes Against Pop was popping at Cop, in fact, on the weekend, but they did break a bad streak to finish the week up. The Dow Jones picked up 1.2%, the S&P 500 1.6%, and hello, NASDAQ. It picked up 226 points for a 2% gain. The S&P TSX index was up 1.2%. Standards & Poor's announced changes to the index, uh, more gold and oil and less healthcare and real estate. Europe also finished the week strong with the stock 600 picking up 0.9%, as did the French CAC 40. The Italians and the Germans had a great Friday, up about 1.6%. The FTSE was lagging with a gain of only 0.04%. Autos performed well on the German exchange with Porsche, Daimler Trucks and Mercedes-Benz all in the top performers. But it was Volkswagen that wowed everyone with an 11.2% jump, reporting strong top and bottom line results in 2022 and a rosy outlook for 2023. Supply chain issues are easy, which means they can sell more cars in the year ahead, make more money, and provide bigger dividends if everything goes according to plan. The Nikkei 225 was another star performer, up 1.6%. The Hang Seng Index picked up 0.7%. Shanghai rose 0.5%. And the Kospi and ASX were also in positive territory on Friday. Uh, Oil was down, but then back up, as a rumor of the UAE leaving OPEC turned out to be untrue. China's imports of Russian seaborne oil are also up, expected to hit record levels. Natural gas jumped over 9%. Gold and palladium are up. Same for platinum and silver, both up well over 2%. Copper was almost flat, falling 0.1%. Looking at bonds, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yield and, frankly, everyone else's 10-year bond yields dropped marginally on Friday. Uh, The U.S. 10-year yield fell below 4% again. Uh, Currencies, the U.S. dollar has been losing ground to the euro, the pound, the Swiss franc, and all across the U.S. dollar index. Canadian dollar is in a holding pattern as traders wait to see if the Bank of Canada will confirm on Wednesday if it will hold interest rates at 4.5%. Divergence with U.S. Fed policy is what to watch for here. The U.S. dollar likewise dropped against the yuan, the yen, the Singapore dollar, and the Aussie and Kiwi bucks. Bad news in crypto world as uh, Silvergate Capital, a crypto bank, is under pressure and dragging down the market. Um, I mean, Bitcoin is trending up at the moment, but is down... On the, on the week and at almost uh, $22,400. Ethereum is down about the same and other major coins are a mixed bag with Ripple down and Cardano and Polygon on the up. As we look across the region right now, uh, things are looking good this morning. The uh, Australian Stock Exchange is on the rise and when we look at our Hang Seng Futures Index, we're also looking at a potential rise this morning. And those are your markets on Money Talk. All right, we're getting to the experts now. I start with in the studio here at uh, Broadcast House. I've got Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum with IMA Asia. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Andrew. Oh, it was awesome to have you on the show. We've also got on the line uh, Ben Emmons, the principal and senior portfolio manager at New Edge Wealth. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Thank you for having us. 
Fantastic. Guys, let's get right into it. Big news over the weekend. Uh, you know, like I said, working for the weekend. The uh, Those hardworking Chinese uh, bureaucrats, technocrats, uh, lawmakers. Uh, Mark, what, what's your take on the the uh, the big news over the weekend? Were, were there any surprises in this or was it all pretty much what was expected? Well, I, I wasn't too surprised. The 5% was sort of signaled way in advance. And, you know, whether that's that's a that's a uh, reasonable number or not it clearly it's right in sort of in the middle of what what many many people are forecasting um it's a really important two sessions of mm-hmm. course because what happens is it's it's every 10 years there's a reshuffling the state council of the cabinet and the ministries under the state council and that's going to happen and people matter to some extent yes mm-hmm. they continue along but it, it matters a lot what what we have to look at in terms of the growth, and I'm sure uh, you'll hear about this. Other things, there are larger structural issues, and mm-hmm. they include con- consumption. And this is supposedly the year of consumption for China. The government has declared it that. Yeah. But so far, it hasn't been coming back. It's not yet. Uh, there's there's slow income growth. There's elevated un- unemployment, which has been taking place, especially among younger people, and of course the property market, which we've talked about many times on Money Talk. Doesn't mean the Chinese economy isn't going to grow. It is going to grow more substantially than last year, almost certainly. But five percent probably isn't such an outlandish number. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, you you bring the property market into this, and they said they they want to control disorderly expansion. I mean, that doesn't sound like they're encouraging. I mean, they they've done a lot to try and prop it up recently, but it doesn't sound like they're still convinced that they want to help out the property market. Yeah, they're not sure what the, how much they want to do. It it seems at least that's a signal. They're may, probably going to have to intervene a little bit more than they expect, and they are going to take the, the both the party and and the government is going to take a, a more. Uh, more active role in the financial area as well. And that's been clear from, from what's been signaled so far. And we'll find out more details in the next week or so. Yeah, Ben, Ben, who's, uh, who's getting helped and who's getting hurt in this one in, in, by sector? Yeah, I think the, uh, the breakdown there between defense uh, spending, for example, which is, which is you know, projected to be higher uh, against, you know, Less spending to infrastructure, right? With this cap on on local bond issuance, uh, even though that they set actually the actual target on on fiscal spending a little bit higher than a year ago, so you, you expect you get some sort of expansionary fiscal policy, but with the focus more on defense spending. And I thought that stood out because obviously there's this, there's also geopolitics around this, right? And uh, given the nature of uh, tension around Taiwan and the support of uh, China to Russia and you name it. So I think that's being noted, obviously, in the West of what will happen from here. The, uh, there are some indices on this. So, you know, Goldman publishes a, uh, a China defense index, really tracking Chinese defense uh, type companies, and that's actually been outperforming the U.S. defense stock. So, you know, I guess people are, are looking at this carefully. Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, I haven't uh, we haven't talked a lot in the show about Chinese defense stocks and who who would be in that index. Uh, and is it are they straight up defense companies that are directly supplying uh, weapons, or is it companies that are also supplying the uh, the manufacturers? Yeah, it's more more that more the suppliers uh, to manufacturers that, that seem to be in that index. Um, I guess what you, what you're dealing with here too is that that because of the of the changes in in um, supply chain uh, politics that we've been going through now between U.S. and China. Uh, you know, there's more money put behind uh, China. I think China Tech and China supply to, the, to defense companies. Uh, 
and and therefore these companies have, have obviously been bolstered by spending and i think this is what the market's picked up on so it's an interesting development i i you know i'm not sure what to make of it in terms of like the bigger picture you know because people you know let's not talk about war here right mm. <laughs> but more about the markets you know you know ultimately markets you know, look where companies are getting money and, and are supported by governments, right? And this is a sector that seems to be the case. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to talk about war, but I mean, we call it the defense sector, but sometimes it is also the attack sector. <laughs> it's a bit of a, yeah. bit of a pretty, pretty name that we put on it. Um, Mark, are the, are the markets, you know, as, as the U.S. and China are decoupling, do these political announcements matter more for deciding where you want to put your money in different sectors? Because, uh, you know, so China says they're spending more in defense. It's going to go to China-related companies, does that mean that you should be more focused on the China markets? Yeah, I, I've, it, it obviously does. And, you know, this couples with the geopolitical aspects as well, with the with the U.S. in particular putting more restraints on China. Mm-hmm. And now this is focusing on especially U.S. investment, in both financial and, and in, in infrastructure investment, into China and, you know, sp- focusing in, on PE and VC and semiconductors, quantum computing, our AI and various other ish- areas. But, you know, depending on what happens in Ukraine, and you mentioned Ukraine, mm. uh, this could this could amplify and significantly cause cause some real issues. We hope it doesn't. But clearly uh, companies, both in terms of what they want to do in China and and in the rest of the region have mm. to th- rethink their, their uh, priorities. Yeah, the rest of the region has a new name now. Uh, the Economist, our, I think Mark, Mark, Mark and I, our old employer, um, the uh, the Economist has coined the term Alt-Asia yeah. and put out a report this weekend describing 14 countries that combined have similar manufacturing and, and trade prowess compared to China. Like, no one does by itself, but 14 combined maybe. Uh, is this is this going to catch on? Is I. I yeah, our members, our members, you know, the famous China plus one or plus two or whatever yeah. is part of what they're doing. Most of them are not leaving China. Mm. In fact, they're trying to find ways to be more competitive in China and in various different sectors. But at the same time, diversifying some some has been, have been doing this for some time, especially in in areas like garments and textiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, others are, are moving ahead. And of course, you've, you mentioned Foxconn, Apple, yeah. their their partner and, and others have been doing this but still pretty small because yeah combine there they may may reach it but that's not what you do right you don't yeah. combine and there's no no area that that uh that that reaches china's expertise and ecosystems yeah ecosystems are all weaker in the other countries in india and vietnam and, and elsewhere so mm-hmm. you have to you have to make you have to make adjustments for that yeah, Ben, uh, you know, companies used to get a stock boost and would, would always include something in their annual reports or their AGM about, about their China strategy. And that, that was, you know, a way they, were, they would get a little bit of a bump in their stock. Um, is the opposite starting to happen? Are companies getting a bump in their stock by diversifying out of China? Is that now seen as a, as a smart thing by investors? I think the results on that are quite mixed. You know, like, so on, on the macro level, you know, the relationship between China and the U.S. has only strengthened economically, right? The trade data that will yeah. come out this yeah. week on Wednesday will show further widening of the trade deficit with China. So there's a fair bit of commerce and trade happening. I think if you drill into earnings, obviously people have always watched Apple and Tesla as one of the, the key uh, benchmarks for uh, for China business because of the sales that they're having in, in, in China and the production that happens in China and has been you know, shoring away from it. And as you know, there's a 
there's an executive order in the work to try to curb at least some of the investment, uh, particularly when it comes to semiconductors, right? Because of the Chips Act, they don't want companies to invest in Chinese uh, chips. On the other hand, they don't really want to curb all the investment flow either. They know that we can't really completely decouple this relationship, especially not overnight. If anything, it's just more of a political statement that part of the presidential campaign that it's actually economically feasible. And so I think, you know, it's not necessarily that the companies in the United States, but their earnings report recently, you know, saw a movement in the stock up or down because of China as much more related to domestic inflation here, how it can be passed on continuously and that margins are, are, are being sustained or not. And I think that was most of the price action of the last few weeks, supposed to China news. Mm, yeah, Mark? The, one of my uh, friends, longtime friends and colleagues, Professor Helmut Schutte just wrote a column in the South China Morning Post on this very subject, mm. and he sort of compared the situation with Russia. And he said, look at how much trouble Western multinationals had trying to uh, trying to exit from Russia, a much smaller economy. Yeah. Just think of the complications of trying to do even something. Right. Did they did they have a lot of trouble? I mean, it just seemed like in the, over the space of a week after the war with the Ukraine started, everyone's like, all right, they, we're out of here. They I mean, left, but they had, had they then had trouble uh, cleaning up what they left and, you know, trying sure. to, to trying to put them elsewhere and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. It was pretty complicated for a lot of them. And, of course, China is much more complex, and most companies don't want to leave, Yeah, most yeah. Western companies. So the, the, this decoupling happening at the political level, uh, over the weekend, a couple of uh, news reports out of the United States. First of all, they had the big CPAC conference, which is the big kind of religious right where, you know, Republican hopefuls have to go and pay homage. Uh, although, although there's suggestions that influence may be waning, but uh, they were they were really down on U.S. tech companies once again, given the social media giants a beating. Uh, but separately, another senator was proposing to ban TikTok entirely from America. Uh, I mean, Mark, where where are we going on this front? Yeah, I, well, there's it's a bipartisan issue, yeah. and you, publicly you don't hear much pushback. Mm. So, I think there will be a. Other measures. This isn't, you know, even though it was an issue as, as you said, CPAC, it doesn't it doesn't affect elections for the most part. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, nobody at this point or no major politician seems to want to be caught out on this issue. So we're going to see some a lot of activity, and some of it may actually affect us. That's the issue. Yeah, Ben, uh, do you see tech companies taking taking a beating in the U.S. Uh, either either the American social media companies, uh, you know, if the Republicans you know, uh, are, are ascendant or for Chinese tech companies trying to operate in America? I think the latter more than, than the former, um, mm. partly because I think some of the, the, the issues around the heat and the former President Trump's ban on social media has now been sort of resolved, right? So, so that plays less of a role. It's more about the Chinese companies operating in the U.S. and more constraints on those companies, if, it, if anything, to requirements for, for accounting standards or more scrutiny on what exactly they're doing here in terms of particularly quantum and uh, artificial intelligence, right, and how that gets transferred back to China, that, that the intellectual property. I think the other uh, things that are going on is that, um, you know, in terms of technology, the, um, the technology companies itself are not in good shape. A lot of them have had big IPOs in the past. You're talking about like mid-sized and smaller companies that were listed in the boom of 2020-2021. They're really burning through cash as a result of the layoff companies. And that has really been a bigger issue here 
both for the sector as well as for, for the economy. You know, most of the layoffs have taken place so far in tech. I think that's more of a focus there if it becomes more wider spread. And that, I think, will, will get attention again in political circles. At the end, you know, Google and, and, and uh, Microsoft and Apple, the companies will continue to be affected by politics in terms of their monopolistic approach to, to uh, different markets, right? And that's been ongoing, uh, these, these antitrust uh, cases. Um, but it has so far not really, I think, has been the reason why these companies have underperformed in the last year or so, um, really because their values were just simply too inflated from the pandemic and it was more a fact of interest rates than of regulation at this point. So, But in the case that we're getting a, let's say, completely red wave in Washington again, White House and, and the House and, and, and the Senate is totally Republican, you could potentially see some more measures and action taken against big tech. That's something in the future, I think, in a few years from now. Okay, Mark, I'm going to give it the final the final word here as we head towards the, uh, the half-hour news. Well, I just want to mention one thing. You mentioned Korea and Japan, yeah, yeah, which yeah. has been a fraught relationship, not just recently, but for a thousand years or so, <laughs> uh, for a while. There does seem to be some movement for the first time in years. Uh, Mr. Yoon, President Yoon, is a little bit seems a little bit more flexible than his predecessor, President Moon, mm-hmm. and and also from the Japanese side, Kishida uh, also looks to be looking for a way forward. They still are allies effectively, but mm-hmm. at the same time, they haven't been cooperating. If they did, it would make things a lot a lot easier economically and politically in the region. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to get into uh, more details. Uh, I'm just wondering why Japan is being... Is, is Japan... Do you think there's a, a shift in thinking in Japan in particular? I th- I think there's probably a, a little bit. We'll see what happens, what the reaction is to this sort of outreach by, uh, by, by the Korean president. All right, we're going to get into it more later in the show with uh, Peter Kim from KB Securities with our view from Korea. Uh, but at the moment, I'd like to thank Mark Michelson, Chairman Asia CEO Forum and I Am Asia, and Ben Eamons, Principal Senior Portfolio Manager at New Edge Wealth. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us today on Money Talk, gentlemen. Uh, still on the show, Carolyn Wright uh, later on is going to be speaking to David Kneebone, who is a financial education consultant about helping older relatives with their finances. Something I was just discussing with my brothers, and we didn't tell my mom that we were having that conversation on the weekend. Um, let's see, what do we got going on in the markets right now? The Nikkei is up, the Kospi is up, the ASX 200 is up, and so things are looking good. Weather, uh, fine, warm, and very dry during the day. Max temperature around 24 degrees. The city's heating up again in metaphorical and literal sense. Uh, the temperature is 18 degrees Celsius. It is 52% humidity here at Money Talk. And now we're going to bring you the news with Vicki Wong. The Greek Prime Minister has asked for forgiveness over the country's worst ever train crash, which has prompted further protests in the capital, Athens. 57 people died in Tuesday's collision between a passenger train and a freight train near Larissa. These railway workers blame the tragedy on successive government's cost-cutting measures. The proper safety measures must be taken, but because companies put profits above workers and passengers, 
these measures were not taken for all these years. We feel unspeakable grief. It's tragic. We are here so that nothing remains in darkness for those responsible to pay, those who've left the railway to its fate, all the governments, all these years. Pakistan's media regulator has barred television channels from broadcasting speeches and comments by the former Prime Minister Imran Khan. It accused him of making baseless allegations against state institutions and spreading hate speech. The move came after Mr Khan accused the government of dragging him to the courts by filing fake cases against him. There is no security at the courts. They know I've had a threat against my life. There's no security. They're summoning me in very small cases from one court to another. Hundreds of supporters had gathered outside Mr Khan's residence in protest against an attempt by the police to arrest him. He's been accused of making misleading declarations about gifts received from foreign leaders while he was in office. Officials in Bangladesh say a massive fire has gutted around 2,000 shelters at a Rohingya refugee camp. About 12,000 people have been left homeless. No casualties have been reported. It's not clear how the fire started. The head of Action Aid Bangladesh, Farah Kabir, told the BBC the flames had spread quickly in the densely populated camp. We host more than a million people in the Rohingya refugee camps. And uh, so far, over 12,000 people have been affected. It's dry season and the wind was blowing, so it quickly spread. I mean, in, in such a short time, in just two hours, it had damaged a huge area. President Biden is in the city of Selma in Alabama to mark the 58th anniversary of what's known as Bloody Sunday, when police beat peaceful protesters who were marching to demand voting rights for African Americans. The violence shocked the country and led to Congress introducing new legislation. Mr Biden told his audience everyone should learn about events at Selma. With unflinching courage, foot soldiers for March for Justice marched through the valley of the shadow of death, and they feared no evil. The forces of hate conspired to demise, but they endured. Correspondents say Mr Biden's visit is aimed at stressing his commitment to black voters, a key constituency in his expected bid for re-election. United Nations member states have finally struck a deal to protect the world's oceans after more than a decade of negotiations. The High Seas Treaty is designed to safeguard oceans that lie outside national boundaries. The treaty will put limits on fishing activity, shipping lane routes and exploration such as deep sea mining. Jessica Panagires of Greenpeace welcomed the deal but called for urgent ratification of the treaty. This now gives the world the pathway towards protecting 30% of the high seas, which is critically important for protecting the incredible biodiversity that resides in the world's oceans. And this has been at least 15 years in the making. So now we need every country to ratify the treaty and agree to implement. And that work needs to happen as quickly as possible. And a parliamentary bloc in Iraq has filed a lawsuit with the country's highest court to overturn legislation banning the import, sale and production of alcohol. On Saturday, Iraq's customs authority ordered the implementation of the ban with immediate effect. The BBC's Yusuf Taha has this report. 
The Babylon movement, which has five seats representing Iraq's Christian minority, says in its appeal to the federal Supreme Court that the legislation is unconstitutional because it ignores the rights of minorities and undemocratic because it restricts freedom. It also contradicts a government decree adopted in mid-February setting duty at 200% on all imported alcoholic drinks for the next four years. Critics say the law will push alcohol sales onto the black market. Parliament approved the legislation back in 2016, but it only became law once it was published in the official Gazette last month. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Welcome back to Money Talk on RTHK3. I'm Andrew Work. We have our famous Your Money feature coming up with Carolyn Wright and then our view from South Korea with Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities. But first in the news, we still have our eye on the big meetings with the MPC and the CPPCC in China. One expert on China's macroeconomy says Premier Li Keqiang's forecast of a 5% GDP growth is an ambitious goal as the nation is still grappling with the lingering impacts of COVID lockdowns. Andrew Collier, a China analyst with Global Source Partners, also warned of headwinds hindering a rapid return to normality. He spoke to Kelly Yu. It's a fairly uneventful work report. It's not terribly ambitious in terms of what it's trying to achieve in reform of the economy, even though he has a reputation as a reformer. The, he does warn about a difficult global environment. And I think that's one of the important takeaways is the Xi Jinping government is very concerned with global inflation, the trade situation given the global economy, and the fact that China is, you know, requires growth through trade. And this may be more difficult going forward. And the work report by Li Keqiang reflects these concerns about the global economic environment. There's also a warning about the insufficient domestic demand. Obviously, China is just emerging from COVID and the economy is getting on its feet. So there's a concern whether people will start have enough money and will go out and start spending money. And one of the highlights in the report is that the Premier has set a 5% GDP forecast for the year. Do you think this is an ambitious goal and does that match with um, what people expect? I do think 5% is an ambitious goal, and Chinese growth is likely to be less than that. People have just spent several years in lockdown, many of whom lost their jobs, and, and the global economy has slowed since for the, over the last couple of years, meaning the trade is going to be hurt, although the trade numbers have been better than I think we, we had expected. So the idea of some sort of huge growth spurt occurring at the end of the year is highly unlikely because I just don't see where that would come from. And in particular, I think there should be focus on the property sector because that is the area that has been the biggest driver of growth in China over the last decade. And China is struggling to reduce the bubble in the property sector. So those are the issues that are more important to me than the 5% figure that he mentioned. So you mentioned about the bubble in the property sector. How do you see the outlook of the property market in China? For example, the risks and opportunities in the property sector? The property sector is in deep trouble, and it's it's not a cyclical downturn that's going to turn around, as some people, I think, assume in China. There was too much construction, particularly in Tier 3 and Tier 4 cities, 
where 60% of property act, uh, activity is occurring. So um, the minute the government started to restrict credit to the property sector several years ago, that set off a downturn that was going to come one way or another anyway. And there's no way they can get that back. And there's a double problem there. One is that the downturn in the property sector affects overall economic growth because of lower demand for steel and concrete and construction activity. But it also hurts the ability of local governments to generate enough revenue from the sale of land to pay for their own social services that they supply to people. And we're back on Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Hey, and for those of you that uh, can't get enough of this talk of the uh, NPC and CPPCC meetings, we're going to have more on that on Backchat today after the news with uh, after the news at nine with uh, Mike Rouse and Tim Gould, who'll be on talking about that those big meetings. Uh, but uh, for now, we're shifting gears uh, in your money today. Carolyn Wright is discussing how we're helping some of those who are nearest and dearest to you in dealing with their money. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. It's time for another look at personal finance and how you can help your family out. Today, we're going to look at helping older members of your family. And David Kneebone, who's a financial education consultant who used to be with the IFEC working here in Hong Kong, is joining me again. So, David, uh, let's turn this time to the older members of your family. And, you know, people may have planned very well during their working lives. They may be thinking that they are set for a very comfortable uh, retirement. But can handling finances post-retirement come as a shock to many? Good morning, Carolyn. Um, I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about this topic because it's important. And yes, in answer to your questions, handling finances can be difficult and tricky for people of all age groups, particularly for people who find themselves uh, nearing retirement or in retirement. But there are some key steps that we can all consider. It's never too early or too late to seek assistance. Mm -hmm. It's a good idea to have a conversation with a licensed financial advisor or a professional financial planner. If you're in the years leading up to retirement or you've retired or you've been in retirement for some time, go and have a conversation with a financial planner about how you can best use what you've got available. Now, there's some rules that some of them might talk about so let's say, for example, you've got uh, the average MPFA balance is around 230, 250,000 Hong Kong dollars at the moment. Mm -hmm. Let's say you've got 500,000, just to pick a figure. Okay. You might hear someone say you should spend 4% of your capital each year if you're 65 and you've got that much money. It's often what you, you'll hear these different terms that financial advisors might use. You've got to work out whether that's the right thing for you, what would what would you end up in years two, years three, years four, years five, assuming returns? A financial advisor can help you with that equation. Should you continue to invest? And if so, at, at what risk level? Often earlier in our lives, we tend to put money we save via MPFA, via other forms of investment into higher risk categories, what we call growth investments. Mm -hmm. Is that the right thing for you in your retirement? Well, it's a question that, again, 
professionals in this area can assist you with, it might be worth leaving some in a growth fund, putting other a, a different amount in a more conservative fund or putting it in a bank account where it's possibly more secure. These are the types of questions that those people can help you with. There's a lot of publicly available information. You don't have to go to a financial advisor to answer these questions. But the key thing is, okay, I'm, I'm near retirement. This is what I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get. How much do I need to spend? What am I going to do? So form a budget. How long might I live for? Now, I think it's probably worth, if you get to 65 and you're healthy, yep. you're likely to live around 30 years. Yeah. So how are you going to spread that money over that time? What government assistance can you get? Because there is government assistance yep. available in Hong Kong in, in many circumstances. Are my children going to help me? Yeah. Do, are my parents still alive, which isn't uncommon? Is there any inheritance coming? All these questions are really key. And that's you can either go through a process to answer them yourself or you can seek professional advice. Great. So that there is a lot of assistance available out there from professional sources. Now, what happens, you mentioned there, say, that you, you might have children who want to, to look after you. How, if you are one of a child of someone who is retiring and you spot that they are struggling with their finances in retirement, is, is there any way that you can help them? What would be the best plan there? I think the most important thing, and this is true of all age groups, is to try and open up the conversation about money. And again, and 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 for many households, it's a bit of a taboo subject still, mm -hmm. but it's really important. And ideally, you'd be in a trusted relationship with the older relatives that you're referring to. Yeah. And ideally, you would be in a position where if they were confronted with a question or a decision that they had to make about their money, that they would share that with you. Yeah. That's important. It's really important. It's really important that we try and encourage older members of our community to not have to make decisions by themselves because often that unfortunately can be where people get into trouble. So if they decide not to seek professional help from a licensed financial advisor, and again, that's your choice. Yep. I would encourage people to talk to family members. I would encourage people to talk to friends. I would encourage people to learn what they can. If you see your parents struggling or your uncle, reach out to them and try and start a conversation. And don't be frustrated if you immediately get rebuffed. It yeah. might take several attempts because sometimes money isn't something, particularly for older generations, that people are comfortable talking about. You really, but it's really important, particularly in the society that we are in today, where unfortunately the elderly are prey to many different people trying to get their money off them, to put it basically. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. And that was something I was really wanting to ask you about, is the kind of thing about putting safeguards in place, because we hear so much in the news here about people being scammed out of significant amounts of money. So is is there anything that, you know, any education that people should be doing or just anything that like like friends and family should be looking out for to say, this doesn't seem right, you know? I think that the first thing is to try and develop an open dialogue about it. That's really, really important. And it's not uncommon for all sorts of members of society of any age to be 
offered. There's initial coin offerings. There's still loco London gold offerings around. Cryptocurrencies, of course. Property deals that just look too good to be true. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of different options, and often they come very targeted and very personal. If you see someone struggling with a decision about investment, then see if you can help. And we're not just talking about investments, obviously. This is quite a broad topic. If you're confronted with having to make a decision, please seek assistance. And you've got to be really careful. If you see someone that you think might be in trouble, sometimes it's it's embarrassing. And they don't necessarily want to to talk about it because they might have lost some money already and they're trying to then trade out of it and do various things. That's really when they need most help. Unfortunately, romance scams are a really um, significant issue and they prey, people prey on the lonely and the vulnerable. If you think that you've been a victim of a scam or if you're unsure about a call you've had, an email you've had or any other issue, Call the anti-scam hotline. Mm-hmm. The number in Hong Kong is 18222. It's run by the Hong Kong police. There is a call centre of people waiting there simply to help you. And it's really worth having a conversation with them if you're unsure. Yeah. And this is particularly important for older people who may be living by themselves or may not have children or grandchildren or others that they trust to fall back on, to, to ask that question. So just remember... Whatever situation you're in, whether you're looking at an older person and you're concerned, or if you are that older person and you're concerned, you're not alone. And please start having a conversation with people about what you could do or whether whether the proposition that's being put to you is too good to be true. Yeah, there's always someone out there that'll listen. I think that's really, you know, helpful to know that. Now, the other thing, aside from scams that older people may still get bamboozled by, is how much um, is now being forced to go kind of online or via an app on your phone. What if you don't feel technologically competent to to handle something? Well, what a, it's, it's a great opportunity to learn and appreciate and this can be confronting for some people as as many subjects can be look i would recommend having a conversation with some of the elderly academies that exist around hong kong and hong kong island mm-hmm. the new territories and kowloon there's actually a really good list on the government chief information officer website and you can see there what the programs that are that are available there's phone numbers there's email addresses reach out Begin to learn about how to use a smartphone. Begin to learn how to use your computer to access various things. Begin to appreciate what is authentic and what isn't. There's a number of different, and I think this is around really not just learning from experts, but learning from each other. Right. I've been in many of these sessions in Hong Kong, and I've learned a lot just through (laughs) listening. other people's stories to be honest because some of the things have been quite (laughs) confronting that i've heard but i think it's um i'm really impressed at that offer now what what i suppose what the chief information officer uh, offers via um elderly academies is one option there are many other options again i would always suggest looking at the ifec website it's also got a number of really useful links 
as do banks, some of the major retail banks, and you know if you trust your bank or not, I think you'll find some of the major retail banks have some magnificent programs available in Hong Kong. The key thing is to reach out and start to learn if you can, if you're comfortable with that. It's worth talking to your children. It's worth talking to your grandchildren because they've grown up in an age where digital technology is just absolutely natural to them. They had it from when yeah. they were kids. Yeah. You didn't. Yes. That's okay. That's cool. Every generation goes through that. When your grandchildren are older, they'll be having the same experience with something else. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for all of your very wise words today. No problem, Carolyn. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. I will be back on Money Talk tomorrow. All right, we're back on Money Talk, and we are now turning our eyes towards uh, the land of the morning calm, South Korea. I uh, would like to welcome to the show Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Hey, so Peter, I know we're going to do a deep dive on uh, Korean uh, domestic politics, but before we get there, uh, I want to ask you about something. We were we were speaking in the earlier part of the show about this uh, rapprochement that's going on right now between Korea and Japan. It seems like it started on Korean Independence Day from Japan when uh, you know the Korean president said some nice things about Japan and their relationship and. You know, the Japanese are now talking about lifting the electronic components export restrictions if the Koreans drop their case at the WTO. What, I mean, if there's some, something has to be happening on both sides of this, but what's happening in Korea that might, uh, you know, make them think that now is the time to start to resolve issues with Japan? Um, it's probably helpful to step back a bit and look at the broader picture of obviously the U.S. and China standoff. Uh, for South Korea's perspective from um, a couple of decades now, uh, they've uh, conveniently um, stayed neutral between the two sides uh, to uh, uh, get the maximum benefits politically mm -hmm. and uh, economically. Um, obviously, with the two sides becoming a little uh, less friendly, uh, South Korea uh, had to, I think, uh, uh, face this sort of uh, inconvenient uh, choice. I think uh, Japan uh, warming is probably a, a product of uh, U.S. trying to uh, perhaps fortify uh, its allies around the region. Uh, and obviously, uh, South Korea uh, aligned with U.S., possibly with uh, Japan, is probably something that the U.S. would like to see. And I mean, are, are the disagreements between China, or sorry, between Japan and Korea, are those disagreements? mostly cosmetic at this point, or do they have a real impact on economic cooperation, military cooperation, uh, these types of things? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, obviously, uh, when that first uh, components ban was issued from Japan, uh, it was the first time for over two decades that uh, there was a, a breakage in the free trade uh, uh, in the region and, in fact, between the two countries. Uh, it has uh, uh, had some uh, lasting impact on it. Um, I think politically, uh, we don't see a big change. I mean, um, I think uh, a bigger question for South Korea is how do they manage uh, uh, the component disruption uh, coming from uh, the broader 
U.S.-China uh, um, uh, dislocation. Mm. Um, I don't. I think uh, we can look forward to at least for South Korea and Japan uh, to be warmer, a lot more cooperative. Uh, but because I think uh, uh, every country and every multinational within that country are trying to minimize the damage of this uh, breakdown in free trade. Mm. So uh, presumably uh, better economic relations between Korea and Japan would, would help Korea and maybe help President Yoon, given he got elected on a pro-growth campaign. Uh, is he facing some headwinds in Korea right now to get that pro-growth uh, platform really underway? Indeed. Uh, President Yoon won by the slimmest uh, margin ever, 200,000 votes. Basically means that half the country did not vote for him, right? Uh, and second, uh, he's facing a left-wing majority uh, parliament, uh, which makes it very difficult for him to pass through a lot of the legislation. Uh, so I think uh, uh, he's already started his term uh, with uh, uh, a very strong headwind. Um, I think he would need to really try to get the public on its side uh, on the pro-growth uh, business-friendly policies uh, to push through a lot of these promised reform uh, during that he made during the elections. Right, and the, uh, my understanding is the, the presidential election and the parliamentary elections are, are not synchronized. So you, you, have, uh, you have an election, the, the election next year is for the parliament, is that correct? That's right. Uh, uh, presidential election every five years, yeah. four more years to go, uh, and it's a single term, so uh, there has to be a, a new president. So it's quite disruptive, uh, makes the political cycle shorter, uh, and for now, for South Korea, uh, we're probably already starting to ramp up on the uh, parliamentary elections uh, that's due up in, a, in about a year. Right, because of course I guess President Yoon would hope that his party can get a majority so that he has alignment on his pro-growth agenda. What is the likelihood of that happening? I know it's a year away, but I mean at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, I think a lot of the uh, uh, right-wing policies uh, are uh, quite... Uh, meeting a lot of uh, uh, stiff uh, opposition from the left wing who are in power for almost 10 years. Uh, so uh, it is uh, going to be a difficult one for them. But I think, uh, uh, you know, having a whole world facing a recession, uh, a one very close to, uh, I think uh, uh, the public at some point will need to start to be sympathetic Right. And, and, and how do demographics play into this? Because quite often you'll see uh, o older people want to see stability and handouts from government, whereas young people want to see growth and opportunities. Uh, you know, sometimes older people, they don't really think about the long term on that. <laughs> I mean, where, how yeah. do demographics play in Korea on that front? Well, uh, you know, demographics is a very complex one. I mean, the latest data on birth rates from South Korea is a shocking uh, 0.7 uh, child per family, and in the uh, Seoul uh, city area, uh, now 0.6. I mean, that's a shocking number. Uh, I think that reflects a number of things. One is that uh, the uncertainty of the future, mm -hmm. uh, the slowing growth of the economy. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, South Korea uh, suffers a lot from the very, very competitive education system. Uh, so I think there is a lot of... Uh, 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 political and sociological factors that's uh, reflected in the low birth rates. I believe that the, um, the, the seniors of South Korea, as you say, just want stability, 
but also uh, wants increasingly social spending in their favor uh, because uh, uh, for the population, uh, they lack the social uh, safety network, uh, social safety net in order for them to uh, live till their 80s and 90s. So uh, uh, I think that's where the real political divide uh, is. Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to keep a close eye on that. Korea is an important part of the, uh, the regional economy and uh, somewhere we all love to visit. I caught a Korean band at uh, Clock and Flap yesterday that just amazed everybody called uh, Lee Nao Chi. Highly recommended. So that'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave you with that little tip for you, Peter, and thank you for sharing your insights with us. That's Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities. All right. We're going to be uh, checking the markets one last time before we head out for the day. Let's have a look here. The Nikkei is up 1.2% on fire. Uh, <clears throat> we just heard about Korea, where the Kospi index is up 0.4%, and the Australian ASX 200 is up 0.55%. So the markets are looking good. Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are also on the rise right now. Bitcoin's up, uh, point, uh, up half a percent. So uh, they took a little bit of a beating towards the end of last week, but things are looking up. Uh, looking ahead, uh, tomorrow, back on Money Talk, we're going to have Alex Wong of Alex KY Wong Asset Management, Peter Churchhouse, founder of Portwood Capital. We'll have The View from Japan with John Barron from the Asia Development Bank Institute. And coming up now, we have Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. We're going to be talking about the big China meetings. Huge thanks to producer-presenter Carolyn Wright, noted pop criminal. My sound man today was Andy Kwok, and this has been Money Talk.